Let's journey back in time to August 1995. Internet Explorer has just been released, beginning a battle of browsers and a war of HTML standards. Speaking of, Garbage uh, released their self-titled album also in August 1995, with both browser and band giving us the lines, Not My Idea and Fix Me Now. I'll take Garbage's album over IE Quirks Mode any day, because after all, they had the better version 2.0, and today, one is on tour and one is headed for retirement. Which means, this week, we talk with Mike Rothman from DisruptOps about practical ways to bring security into DevOps practices. In the news segment, a game makes a hash of security, a gym gives a hash of passwords, escape sequences make a name for themselves, All-Star makes a push for all code, some DEF CON highlights, and more. Grab a pink feather boa and stay tuned for applications. Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly for security professionals by security professionals. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. We discuss application security a lot on this show, and we know that the implications for code security have become even greater as cloud adoption accelerates software development. Shift Left bridges the gap between security teams and developers to find and fix vulnerabilities accurately from the source. Shift Left Core is an innovation in code security with industry-leading accuracy and speed. It combines next-generation static code analysis, intelligent software composition analysis, secrets detection, security insights, and contextual developer security education in one one easy-to-use platform. Learn more and create your free, yes, free account at securityweekly.com forward slash shift left. In any business today, there comes a moment, the moment you realize you can secure the code as fast as you write it. Instead of testing everything, you can just test the right things. It's not about tools, but intelligent risk management. That's the moment you choose Synopsys. Build secure, high-quality software faster. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash synopsis. Looking to improve your web application security? Probably is reinventing web application security. Probably focuses on the vulnerabilities that matter, eliminates false positives with evidence-based scanning, and provides a simple point-and-shoot solution that is easy to use. Probably's thorough coverage ensures accurate identification of vulnerabilities in any modern web application or API. Improve your web application security processes by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash probably and start your free trial today. This is episode 162, recorded August 16th, 2021. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with John Kinsella, who I think is only happy when it rains. How, how is that so, John? <laughs> yeah, I, when you when you did that intro, I'm like, ooh, I was thinking about Garbage the Band. I'm like, oh, he's talking about Garbage the Band. Good morning. I'm a fan of Garbage <laughs> Uh, definitely a fan of Garbage too. Got to see them, of all places, at the Elysee Montmartre in Paris in 1996. One of the best shows I've ever been to. Uh, one of, not a show, but one of the best websites you could ever go to is the uh, Cyber Risk Alliance in partnership with InfraGuard has launched the Critical Infrastructure Resilience Benchmark Study. Measure your readiness for ransomware by completing the survey and getting your score. Visit securityweekly.com slash CIRB to take the survey. SC Media debuts its all-new SC Digital Experience, fully integrated with Security Weekly podcast content just like us, and more. The new site increases the scope and scale of original content resources from editorial staff, contributors, and the far-reaching Cyber Risk Alliance Network. Visit scmagazine.com to check out the new look. Mike Rothman is a 25-year security veteran uh, specializing in the sexy aspects of security, such as protecting networks, protecting endpoints, security management, compliance, and helping clients navigate a secure evolution in their path to full cloud adoption. In addition to his role at DisruptOps, Mike is an analyst and president of Securosis. Hello, Mike, and thank you for joining us. Hey, Mike, how are you? You, you make me kind of sound old in that description, but uh, I, I prefer experienced. That I think will work out better for us today. Experience. I did almost read it as a 25-year-old security veteran, which, hey, <laughs> that's <laughs> maybe doing compliance and trying to fix all those endpoints and networks can yeah. age you pretty. <laughs> before, you know, before security was a thing, right? We've been doing it, so... It is. Well, now security maybe still is a thing, but security is becoming, uh, with a motto like shift left, it's 
ostensibly becoming a motto for developers too. Security is a thing for developers. We're shifting left. You're more responsible for it. But um, it's one easy thing just to say, cool, you take care of security now. It's been 25 years. We're giving up and going away. Um, I, that doesn't really sound like a practical or tangible approach that a security team should be taking. So um, as we talk about this shift to DevOps and different types of agile and so on, what can security teams do to have an actual practical impact on, on these on development of modern software? Yeah, that's actually a, a great point is, is that, and I, I like to say I've been doing security for, you know, well over 25 years, and I've been trying to get out of security for at least 23 of those <laughs> years um, by working ourselves out of a job, right? Because what we're mm -hmm. trying to do is get security more integrated into the general processes. DevOps is certainly an opportunity to do that as we do shift left as we kind of think more about infrastructure as code uh, and being able to really embed a lot of these security motions directly into kind of how we build our stack, that's fine. So we clearly say, yeah, shift left where you can. But, you know, from our standpoint at Disrupt Ops, it's, yeah, shift left, but don't forget about what happens on the right. So that gets to a lot of um, operational motions and making sure that you've got proper both configurations as well as your uh uh, monitoring for attacks, right? So yes, build it in upfront, try to get rid of it, work ourselves out of a job. But the reality is there's always going to be some oversight necessary and not just from a compliance standpoint, but from an operational security standpoint that regardless of how we build and deploy this code and these application stacks that we're always going to have to deal with. Yeah, totally. And I'm definitely on board with that idea of let's work ourselves out of a job or work ourselves into a different job. But let's do something different because we actually made things better. But in that spirit of making things better or getting, you know, getting these alerts is sort of you're saying what's going on as uh, on the right hand side, so to speak, what, you know, applications have been developed. They're living in the cloud, for example. It's one thing to say we need to know what's going on. But if we start to pick that apart, that's where the security team and developers, for that matter, do need to have a conversation of what exactly am I supposed to know? Do I just need to know that we configured, we went through a checklist and deployed correctly? Do we need to know that our IAM policy meets some standard, I say in uh, square quote, scare quotes? You know, what does the right information kind of look like from in this perspective? So you're mentioning the C word there, right? And, you know, uh -huh. to get your mind out of the gutter, fellows. Um, <laughs> no, no, the context word, right? You know, what we need is really a lot of context about what any of these specific alerts mean. And and right now, especially as you kind of move towards and we talk about applications and, and, and DevOps, you know, but there's a lot of cloud operational challenges that folks are thinking about now. So a new capability, right, or a new category of technology has emerged known as CSPM, right, Cloud Security Posture Managing uh, Management. Uh, and really what it is, is kind of a, a new age vulnerability scanner. And like most vulnerability scanners, it generates a report of, you know, 200 some odd pages of crap you're never going to fix, right? So it's like, oh, great, you know, right, kind of into the circular bin uh, from that standpoint, because you're dealing with all sorts of other you know, kind of issues there. So what we're trying to do is get this concept of supplementing just the, hey, this is the stuff that's broken in your environment with the context to understand how it's broken and really what the impact of that being broken is so folks can more effectively prioritize. And then hopefully at some point get to the point where we're actually automating the remediation of these capabilities for certain categories or for certain issues, you definitely want to start thinking about how can I automate these repetitive motions. So we provide context, you have to provide, you know, the ability to fix uh, over time, because again, you know, kind of these operational issues are not going to go away, regardless of how effective you get at building security into your DevOps process. So, so one of the things that also stands out to me is you you kind of mentioned, here's a Vuln scan, so call it a, an old school Vuln scan that just produces pages and pages of stuff that you're supposed to maybe go fix, maybe it's prioritized well. But another challenge, especially when you get into larger organizations is, who do you give this list to? Who's supposed to fix it? Meaning you might have legacy applications, unowned applications. And I would hope in modern cloud environments, the same isn't true. Um, but I suspect I'm being over optimized 
optimistic there. So what a, you know, do you see yeah. these same problems of, hey, here's some things to fix, but how do you find the right person who should be fixing that? And are we talking about the security team or the, the, the DevOps or development team? Well, both, Mike. Of, I mean, it's... Let's, it, uh, let's put a tiny, okay, bit, so, tiny bit of color on that question before you go, Mike. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, John. Is, yeah. it, <laughs> is, it, is, it, is it better or worse than legacy apps? Ah. Um, oh, that's actually a, a great, you know, kind of clarification, John, because, you know, clearly uh, we would like to op optimistically think that we've got, you know, kind of our act together and, you know, kind of we tag mm -hmm. everything effectively and we know the owners of both the application stacks and all the resources that are in, that are in our environment. And of course, then you kind of intersect with the real world where that definitely doesn't happen. Now, do I think is it better or worse to getting to John's point? I do think it's better because what we have are self-contained application stacks where you kind of know, you know, at least what group is responsible or functionally responsible uh, for a number of these initiatives that are happening again within a DevOps motion or in the cloud uh, or both. Uh, from from that perspective, but but I, I do think that you know finding the actual individual to route the alerts to can be problematic, right? That can certainly be challenging because it's like, well, is it the security team that's responsible for these things? And the reality is, uh, for a small subset of issues, the answer is absolutely yes, right? So for things that create existential threats to the organization, you know, root account compromises, you know, escalation of privileges, you know, kind of open networks or open storage buckets. I mean, there are some things that we basically call the no-nos, right? They should never happen in your environment. If they do happen, then security is empowered to go and fix those things, right? So shoot first, ask questions later to use a horrible analogy uh, from that standpoint. But for everything else, and, and basically everything else is probably 98% of the stuff that you're going to deal with, it has to go through some kind of validation, um, alerting, you know, kind of routing, and then remediation function. And, and finding out those responsible parties is a huge challenge. Uh, and honestly, the answer to that is the good old fashioned, I got to get up out of my chair and actually figure this out. Right. And that means going to talk to some of the application leaders, going to understand how they want those operational motions to work. Because, you know, the good news with DevOps and cloud is that it's really empowered a lot of application teams to do pretty much everything themselves. And of course, the downside of that is that a lot of these application teams are empowered to do things themselves, right? So figuring out how they want to work is, again, another aspect of what's important from a security standpoint is that we've got to work within their operational motions. We can't dictate anymore kind of what those operational motions are going to be. Well, I guess we can, right? But we'll be, you know, kind of barking into the either as you know, I think many have for many years. And I think an aspect of also kind of what John was, was I think, getting to there too, and what you were saying, Mike, is that perhaps the cloud does have better capabilities to be tracking this in the sense of being able to decorate our resources, tag them, uh, and having APIs in order to query those tags. So the con conceptually, um, you know, AWS, GCP, Azure, all of those can, we, we can put metadata onto these resources, but once again, am I saying this just that we can, but do teams actually do that? And has it made things better? Just this, even this basic capability. So I think maybe my question here is more along the lines of, have you seen this sort of tagging these resources in the spirit of, I own this, I own this, this team's own that, this team owns that, et cetera. Um, or is there a way that team that, you know, teams can, can adopt this kind of strategy early on to be successful? You absolutely want to see organizations kind of adopt, you know, an effective tagging structure as they get going in the cloud. Does that happen? No. Um, you know, so what you're doing is you're constantly retrofitting things. Then you'll have a new application team that, you know, kind of starts uh, coming in and doesn't really play well uh, in the sandbox with, with everybody else. So it's a constant, you know, kind of push and pull from that standpoint. But I, I do believe that, we are making progress operationally in terms of trying to build a lot of these environments for both isolation, right? Because from a security standpoint, that's mm -hmm. absolutely critical. So that if I lose one environment or one application stack, it doesn't impact everything else, but also for scale, 
right? So how can I achieve operational scale? How can I leverage a lot of the things that happen or are enabled by the cloud? And, and Mike, you had mentioned APIs and the ability to pull, aggregate, analyze, and then act, uh, you know, on both the metadata and the actual resources in a more automated uh, fashion. So all of those things are good. But um, again, with this power, right, with this capability comes increased risk. So think about it as, yes, we, whereas we were kind of always on a tightrope in I, you know, traditional IT, uh, when you fell, maybe you fell five feet, right? You know, now we're kind of in the cloud and maybe we've got, you know, two or three feet to, you know, kind of walk around because we've got better operational tools. We've got better ability for visibility. We've got better tagging across everything. Um, if you screw it up, it's a lot further to fall. Right. Because, uh, you, you know, if you open up stuff, if you make something overly permissive, it's not just your internal resources or possibly your data center uh, that can access this stuff. It's pretty much everybody. So higher risk, um, you know, but easier operational environments if you do the right stuff. And that's one of the things that, you know, kind of we've been working on with a lot of our clients and, and kind of really kind of trying to espouse in the industry is the importance of these structured operational motions, understanding a lot of that intelligent alerting and who is supposed to get, you know, the contextual information for when uh, either attacks or misconfigurations are found in your environment. And then ultimately, how can I get that into a remediated motion? So you're not just generating a 200 page report of things that are broken. You're not just finding those issues. You're also giving the customer the ability to fix them again within their own operational motion, which may involve any amount of automation. You just don't know, right? Every customer is going to get there in their own time. So one of the themes you're just saying right now is a lot of that operational aspect. And to me, it sounds like, you know, this it, it's in the name, right? DevOps. DevOps is the ones responsible for the cloud, for deploying in the cloud, the engineering designs, principles behind it, et cetera. Um, it, so deploying a tool like this, what, you know, it, how have you seen some good strategies or, or how have you seen the, the, the organizations you work with approach this in the sense of here is security doing all the operational work to build this up, stand this up, et cetera? Or are they collaborating, hopefully, you know, some positive, constructive way working with the DevOps team to, as, the, as the folks with ops in their name to have this operational slash burden slash, um, you know, responsibility? Yeah, that, that's so how you onboard and, and take on any kind of operational tool uh, will really be kind of contingent on the culture and, and the ability of the security team to, you know, really work with a lot of the operational teams. What we tend to see uh, is a very much a crawl, walk, run type of, of mm -hmm. approach. And, and by crawl, we mean just give us some visibility, right? So we'll connect into the cloud environment. We'll tell you what's busted. We'll get you the information that you need without, you know, any expectation that we would automate some of those fixes. Uh, as they, you know, start to walk, they take a handful of the higher priority issues or more damaging, more risky issues, uh, and then start to look to, you know, kind of automate some of those operational motions. And then when you're running, then it's really about what else can I automate? And that involves uh, a decent amount of customization, you know, kind of working the operational motions for how the organization wants to work, working the alerting motions for those things that you don't feel comfortable with uh, operationalizing from, from that perspective. So it, it's really all over the gamut. But what is absolutely most critical uh, is that partnership that you kind of mentioned, right? You know, the security folks working hand in hand with the development or the operation folks or both, right? So that security becomes really embedded within the environment that you've always got that continuous visibility. You're always, again, paying attention to the right, you know, it's clearly we want to shift left, but we can't ignore the right. Uh, so ensuring that you are on top of those operational environments uh, and then, you know, really working in collaboration with the rest of the teams so that security can do what security should be doing, which is providing oversight, setting um, policies uh, and enforcing those policies in, in very limited situations where, again, it creates a, a, an undue or unacceptable risk to the organization. 
So, so it sounds like you're describing, in a way, two paths. One at the very end, they're a bit more explicit on that aspect of, of governance oversight for the security team. But there was a subtler aspect of security just becoming part of the engineering team. And they maybe they are security-focused engineering, uh, but they're, they're helping that partnership with DevOps, and they're taking on that, let's build something, let, let's be operational. And I'm curious, does that sound, you know, am I hearing you right in that sort of, you know, two paths diverging for security folks? And does that seem like a, a smart way for folks to go down? So we get in, in both my capacity as, you know, kind of an executive at Disruptos, but also, you know, kind of with my gadfly hat on uh, at Securosis, uh, I get asked a lot about, you know, kind of what do we focus on? Security is so exciting and hot and, and you know, I want assured employment forever. What should I focus on? Um, and, and it was funny, right? How things you know, kind of come full circle. Well, probably 15 years ago, I started talking about application security. Ergo, application security weekly, uh, right? About how important <laughs> it was to start to embed, you know, kind of testing and capabilities for security within the application stack. Uh, and we've come full, full circle now in that I think the most effective security professionals moving forward don't have to be developers, to be clear, but they do have to understand development. They do mm. have to understand scripting. We do have to understand automation because those are going to be the capabilities that are going to become embedded within these application stacks. And that's going to be driven by the folks that want to roll up their sleeves, get their hands dirty and actually do stuff. Uh, and then there's kind of that other path, which is more policy, oversight, governance, guidance. We don't, you know, kind of mention that uh, too much, but there's always an important aspect at the beginning of any SDLC for an organization, which is training the developers, training the operations people in terms of what security means, how to embed it into their environment, you know, kind of how do you know when you've done it right? How do you know when you've done it wrong? Just so just a lot of those things that we don't get coming out of the womb uh, in terms of how to do kind of technology in a secure fashion, as opposed to this, this discipline of bolting security onto the stuff that we already have moving forward. So what we really want to see is both. Right. We want to have security embedded within the environment. And that means, you know, security folks, they may not even be security folks anymore. Right. They may be protectors that work within these application, you know, development teams and or operational uh, teams. Uh, and we also have kind of that more traditional oversight security role, which is really about governance, about reporting, about compliance, about policies and about education. You know, it's your. Reminded me of, um, we've got an article coming up in the news, um, uh, I think it's from CSO Mag, someone talking about, uh, you know, how to, how an application, how developers should be um, logging in their applications, right? Which, it sounds like such a basic thing, but really it, it, it can be fairly, you know, for those of us who have that operational background or, you know, you've had to troubleshoot something at three o'clock in the morning, we appreciate logs. Um, but it got me thinking, that's something that I don't think anyone teaches in college right it's like that's one of those things you learn when you you know you bump your shin type thing so the question back to you sort of thinking about that is is there something you'd love to see is there like a single thing you'd love to see developers come out of college with uh, <laughs> wow that's an open-ended question john um yeah there's a lot of things i would love to see around you know, application of, security no i know but it's just you, you know just developers are all all tech folks i mean i i do think that, you know, kind of how to engage and when to engage scanners within your, you know, kind of DevOps process is, is absolutely critical. Um, and that, you know, kind of involves from template land, right, you know, well into, you know, kind of the, the development piece of that, uh, as well as, you know, kind of throughout the rest of the pipeline to make sure that you are adhering to these, you know, specific policies, uh, writing, you know, kind of good unit tests to test for some security, you know, kind of issues. Uh, again, I think that's a very underappreciated and, and underutilized uh, capability uh, on the part of the dev team and logging, right? Instrumentation, let's call it instrumentation, right? Because it's not just from a security standpoint. It also, you have a, a whole bunch of folks that are interested in the performance characteristics of a lot of these modules, a lot of these code uh, code snippets, a lot of these microservices. Uh, and really, and especially as we move towards more serverless type motions, this observability, both from an operational performance and security standpoint becomes absolutely critical. So understanding how how do I actually start to build some of this logging into or instrumentation 
into my stacks from the get-go is, is important, but how much, right? Where, and, and, and also operationally, where do I put the stuff? Because as we move towards things like serverless or, you know, kind of auto scaled environments, I mean, you just have ephemeral resources, right? Here, one second, gone the next. How do I make sure I don't lose that telemetry? So it's a lot of these more operational disciplines that um, I think they're so interested in making sure folks can, you know, complete the hello world, uh, you know, kind of aspect of, of their education. They don't think about the operational requirements of doing some of these things at scale. Great points. Yeah, and, and that's interesting too because you're talking a, a lot about you know the, where we're going to as well. And there's, I, it sounds like I'm going to guess developers are still forging ahead onto serverless, onto whatever the the newest, latest, coolest uh, cloud technology is, or containerization technology for that matter. And security maybe is just catching up and just especially if you're just talking about we need visibility we just need to see what's going on we haven't even talked about like designing guardrails <laughs> designing secure architectures as well so if, if we put our, our hats on and look towards the future uh, in in our time traveling uh, theme here uh, you know what, what does the future hold for whether it's visibility or just this principle of shifting on shifting security onto development team and how the security teams can do that in actually helpful ways. I, I think that we are making progress, right? The tools are better. And I think folks are starting to understand a lot of these operational motions. Um, the future is clearly going to be unevenly distributed. Right. You know, lots of, of, you know, kind of tech quotes uh, around that. You are definitely going to have the folks that get it, have made the investments, you know, kind of do have integrated processes and motions and have embedded security into their environment. You've got a whole bunch of other folks that aren't going to do that until they absolutely have to. So to, to, to John's point, they don't do this stuff until they, you know, kind of hit their shin. Um, and let's hope that that's the worst of the impact that happens to some of these organizations. I suspect we're going to see a lot more high profile issues along that front. But in general, security is going to be behind. Let's be very clear about that, because in a lot of cases, the incentive and the imperative on the part of these teams is to innovate and is to bring out new capabilities and new features, leveraging new capabilities of both DevOps, cloud, you know, new types of applications, new types of capabilities. Um, and nobody is going to sit there and say, well, let's see what security has to say about that, right? That's never happened. I don't think that's going to happen in the future. So the closer we can get into the process, right, embedded into the process, mm -hmm. the more likely it is that we're not horrifically behind, that we're just a bit behind and that we can actually, again, I'm never going to say catch up, right, but that we can sort of keep pace with kind of the innovative capabilities that we constantly see introduced into the tech stack. So it's, again, it, I, I don't think it's possible to, you know, get out ahead of it. We've been trying for, I don't know, I've been doing this 25, 30 years at this point. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. But if we can kind of shorten that time frame that we're behind, I think everybody wins in that case. No, th that makes sense. And especially in that aspect of keeping up and, you know, different organizations are going to have different levels of maturity just to be able to do that. So I'm curious, too. So for those orgs that do have perhaps the better maturity and they're keeping pace, or at least they're they're following along that innovation at a healthy rate. And what would be the next step then beyond just visibility? Meaning we have at least uh, I, I still have to use my, my scare quotes to say we have a, a decent visibility of our network or we think we know where everything is, uh, what's sort of the next step after, after we have a, a decent inventory, if you will? Yeah, I, I think, you know, kind of we tend to, again, continue to follow that, that crawl, walk, run type of, of mm -hmm. concept. So, so once you've got decent visibility over what's happening in your environment, then you start to look, and again, it's based upon priorities, right? What could do a lot of damage in my environment? What are the things that I can do to both identify that faster, right? So I've got my visibility. So what kind of either event-driven 
analysis do i need you know this event happens this could rep represent significant malicious activity you know what do i do right so then you get kind of get back into that traditional security architecture security operations motion which is given this trigger what happens then you know and how do i automate that and and make it as quickly um accessible as as possible so what we see for those folks that are getting a little bit further ahead both from an integration organizationally and culturally uh we do start working with them on how do you start staging some of these operational motions so that and again we're not talking about 10,000 you know things that you have to do how about like a dozen you know start with a dozen the stuff that again will create very significant issues within your environment um fix those up front you know make sure that you have an, an automated motion that you're comfortable with that automated motion uh move on to the next one so a very much an iterative wash, rinse, repeat concept where, you know, take the next thing that, again, will kill you if it happens in your environment, <laughs> figure out again, who has to be notified of this thing? How do I collapse, you know, the amount of time it takes from discovering that to the time where I can either quarantine it, remediate it, uh, and or in, in some other way address that specific issue. But it gets back to, again, incremental process. I can't stress that enough right? We're not going to boil the ocean. We're not going to get everything done in, in one fell swoop. This is a journey, right? And what it means is we've got to have visibility up front. We have to know, you know, kind of what the things that'll kill us are, trigger those, figure out what the operational motion is going to be, wash, rinse, repeat. And over time, right? And, and remember, you can leverage a lot of these things across all of your different tech stacks. So over time, you really do improve not just your security posture, but your ability to handle the inevitable issues that happen in your environment by taking this, again, very iterative approach. Uh, it, that sounds wonderful. It's a great, great plan. And unfortunately, we're, we also have the inevitable issue of running up to the end of the uh, segment here. Uh, but that would, I, I love the idea that, that there was no nihilism in there. It was that very much to basically repeat what you said, crawl, walk, run, you know, start that trend of improvement and that trend will actually get you to a good place. Um, so any, any other final thoughts for us, Mike, as we, uh, as we come to, as we start to wrap up here? Yeah, always a pleasure, right? And and you know, I think that uh, it's important, especially for folks that spend all or most of their time with developers or in DevOps processes. Um, it really is about starting to integrate and think about, as as John said, instrumentation. Right? What information do we need? Start to think about those operational motions uh, in terms of four things that will kill us. How do we start to you know kind of collapse and shorten that window of exposure? Uh, and really just understand and be very pragmatic about the reality that this is a process. It is a journey, uh, and we're not going to get there overnight. But if we don't start, we'll never get there. So things like tagging, you know, kind of making sure that you can uh, get the alerts to the right folks uh, and integrating a lot of the, you know, kind of testing environment to shift left. But as always, don't ignore the right shift left. Don't ignore the right. And that's kind of what we'd leave you with today. <laughs> I think that's great words to, to leave us with. Thanks again, Mike, for joining us. Also want to thank uh, John and thank all of our listeners hanging out with us in the uh, Discord channel as well. If you'd like to learn more about DisruptOps, visit securityweekly.com slash DisruptOps. We're going to take a quick break now and return with news of the week. DisruptOps helps you find and fix cloud security issues fast. Getting bombarded with irrelevant alerts is frustrating. DisruptOps gives security and DevOps teams prioritized findings and routes relevant alerts to Slack or Microsoft Teams with automated response options that save you time. Finally, security is inside your workflow instead of in your way. Listeners can access the full platform free for 30 days by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash DisruptOps. Are you looking for a solution to protect your web apps against the most business-critical security vulnerabilities? Unleash the power of automated ethical hacker knowledge with Detectify for continuous coverage and relevant security vulnerability findings. Upgrade your web app security with speed and scale and start a two-week free trial at securityweekly.com forward slash Detectify. Go hack yourself. Whether you need to manage bots, protect cloud applications at runtime, stop formjacking attacks, or secure your web applications and APIs, only Imperva offers a unified solution to protect from edge to application and data in one tool. Imperva helps you achieve more, save money, and become more efficient with fewer security vendors needed. Start a free trial today to easily protect your apps and website with Imperva. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash Imperva. 
Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by John Kinsella. Security Weekly Unlocked will be held in person this December 5th through 7th at the Hilton Lake Buena Vista. We are excited to announce our first round of speakers. It's a long list, so give me a second to catch your breath. We have Leslie Carhart, Dave Kennedy, Alyssa Miller, O'Shea Bowens, Marina Savada, Patrick Coble, Chris Ang, Eric Escobar, Nick Leghorn, Michael Schlatt, Kevin Johnson, and Justin Kohler. Visit securityweekly.com unlocked to register and check out more of our exciting lineup. You can also join us on August 26th at 11 a.m. Eastern to learn how to implement cloud security that actually works. Visit securityweekly.com slash webcasts to register now. And if you missed any of our previously recorded webcasts or technical trainings, they are available for your viewing pleasure at securityweekly.com slash on demand. And this brings us to our new segment. Thank you for continuing to join us. And the new segment, uh, John, you're carrying the flag again for hardware. You've uh, got some cool hardware uh, security articles this week. I do. <laughs> Just screw up. <laughs> <No>. um, <laughs> I was going to make you. a great joke about, about that. Was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's um, a great yeah, pause. Of, go ahead. <laughs> that actually could be yeah. a... I'll let you work on that one. Um, yeah, so there's two articles in here. Um, the hardware stuff's interesting, and it, it's funny. Um, man, I got to find time. So the first one we got here is an article talking about doing voltage glitching in AMD CPUs. So I think historically when we've talked about voltage glitching, you know, it's a relatively new thing we've seen over the last, what, 10 months or so. It's sort of, I think, been on my radar. But it's usually been talked about with... Um, you know, small microcontrollers. I think at the end of the day, this is sort of a scary area to play in, right? Um, if th this was being done on um, some of AMD's bigger CPUs, uh, I don't know if I model in here, but it's, you know, something that has SGX, which which isn't a, a, a small CPU. So this is like, you know, a, a desktop class or laptop class CPU. Um, they're not cheap. So you're going to start thinking about doing voltage glitching. Like, you know, we, we had Maggie on a few weeks ago talking about how do we get into mm -hmm. hardware hacking? You're not going to start on a, a desktop class <clears throat> CPU, right? That's not a cheap thing to start because if you if you glitch Crawl that bad boy a little bit too much, yeah, you're yet. So, so it's interesting to see as 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 the researchers started with the cheaper CPUs, they're now actually having confidence to start working on this with the higher end stuff. So, um, this was a a good example of that, and um, you know, it, it's a really interesting area. I'd, I'd love to play with the space of if and when I get some time. Um, but that was the first article. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that, Mike, or, um, you know, see voltage glitching in your future. I see. Um, I'm definitely going to do it with um, some alligator clips and, you know, a voltmeter. So uh, I'm going to do it with the, 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 I'm going to be very heavily on the crawl side of the crawl walk run. So uh, those CPUs are safe for me for quite a while. Nice. You'll just have like a, uh, um, what strong bad called it? You'll have a, a light switch rave with your CPU. Um, and then, <laughs> yeah. so the next article for our strong bad fans out there, uh, next article was um, talking about, you know, what are the benefits around RISC-V CPU architecture? This is the open source uh, architecture for RISC, which, excuse me, the open source RISC architecture, man, they've been working on it for a while. I think it's been at least five years, but it's gained popularity over the last year or two. You can start buying some RISC-V RISC CPUs out there, microcontrollers. Um, and, you know, use them in, you know, that sort of Arduino class of stuff. But the nice thing about this open architecture, and open it's an open source uh, CPU architecture, beside that you can model it on um, FCB, FPGAs and other sort of, you know, you mod, mod, model it in software, if I can talk. Um, mm -hmm. But you're also able to, once you've got that model in there, you can start doing some pretty neat what-ifs without... Um, having to use either a, a weaker, smaller architecture, which is designed for for academia, or you're definitely not going to get the architecture behind, you know, Intel CPUs, right? So, how does someone who wants to play in a um, a microcontroller space, how do they get that? Risk Five lets you do that. Uh, and in this particular case, uh, there's some researchers looking at how would we, you know, we've got this upcoming. Everyone's worried about one of these days we'll go get quantum uh, computers common enough they're going to be able to start cracking passwords and crypto is going to fall apart and all that whole doomsday scenario. Some of the academics and researchers will have to figure out, well, what, what can we do about that? Is there something we can do in a CPU to make those, um, uh, t those type of attacks from a quantum computer to be more difficult? Uh, and in this case, what they did is they added 29 different um, instructions in there, which would help, you know, between both 
focusing around crypto, but also making it more difficult to to block that. So it's it's neat to see what you're able to do with uh, um, with an open source CPU to be able to put some of that stuff in there. Uh, and, and this is sort of a neat read for people to want to think about what they do in that space. Yeah, it's been, it's really, really neat. I think I Risk Five came across my radar two or three years ago, uh, listening to a hardware security conference uh, where some academics were talking about just a lot of work they've been doing with those chips. And it's really neat to see that I, I think, as you mentioned, that I really want to emphasize that open source design aspect of it really makes it a, a great sandbox that looks like hopefully becomes much more than just academic, and we get some actual, you know, some practical uh, deployments of chips with built-in crypto, built-in protections from uh, cl different classes of types of attacks too, not even just uh, uh, quantum cryptography, but memory safety issues or other types of uh, encryption timing, those those types of issues. So neat to watch. And uh, I'm definitely going to leave that on your radar because I think you're definitely more geared and uh, tuned in uh, than, than, than my brain can handle. Because my brain, for example, can handle sh the software side of things. And this is where I picked up two articles um, going into one about Steam uh, that was need not a misuse of a hash function, but an input into a hash function. And this is a case where a researcher uh, found a really neat way to bypass how the uh, strings were being concatenated together of a name value pairs of URL parameters, essentially, which these URLs. URL parameters were concatenated and hashed so that Steam could say, well, this is what we think the amount of a transaction was, and we want to hand it over to our payment provider and say, yep, here's, you know, authorized $20 payments, or this is, you know, we need a $20 payment here. What the researcher found is that they could concatenate the strings using some clever renaming of names and values. So amount equals 2000 or $20, for example, becomes amount two as the name of the variable equals zero, zero, zero as the value and then use some some nifty creativity um creative uses of email addresses to stick in their amount equals one for example just one dollar uh, and that's the long way of saying that what happened was that the hash function itself didn't really matter here because it could have been secure it could have been insecure it could have been in hmac for all, well it couldn't have been in hmac but um what, what, what happened in this case is that they were the developers missed delimiters and the delimiters are necessary when doing this type of string concatenation so that you can actually keep that semantic meaning that this is a field name and this is a field value. And it's one of those things that I had actually come across when I was trying to uh, building a web scanner, uniquifying URLs based on parameter name and value and getting some weird collisions when names and values uh, put together in a long string of letters became very confusing. So it was a really neat thing that that, that it, it spoke to me, John. So that, that's why I had to throw this particular uh, hacker one bug bounty report in there. Well, if it speaks to you, then I mean, that that's that's reason enough. Um, <laughs> you know what's interesting about this this bug bounty stuff? I was interviewing a, um, a, a candidate to hire as an engineer, a software engineer earlier today. Uh, my day started early. And um, it wasn't on his resume, but as we're talking, the dude starts saying, I was asking, you know, how do you, what, what's your thoughts on security? What's your experience? That type of thing. It's like, yeah, I've, I've done a few hacker one, uh, capture the flags. And it's, it's Ooh. interesting. It's really starting to spread out the, the number of, cause I, it's not something I would have expected. I didn't sort of sense that from his resume. Um, I usually don't hire, I'm not looking to hire a developer who has security experience. That's just a plus, right? But I, I didn't see anything on his resume gave me a, a hint of that. But I think I'm going to start seeing more of that where people want to get experience on the side of the fence, that they're going out and um, using that as a platform to learn in a, a fun way, I think. So I think that's sort of cool. It, it is cool. And, and that's a great setup for the other article that I pulled in from, I think this was from Bishop Fox. They, they found some vulnerabilities in a, some gym management web application. And uh, it's just a classic image on error. Uh, XSS that they found and, and a couple other like IDOR, a couple other vulnerabilities. But I, I think that ties back to what you were saying is that you don't also you, you don't have to be uh, super knowledgeable about security because sadly, there's some classic old school, if you will, vulnerabilities out there to be found if you just want to to start looking. So it's, it is a great way to use 
bug bounty programs to learn, educate, and get get a sense of security or just at least exercise that security-minded thinking. Um, but one of the other things that stood out to me from this article and I was like, made me scratch my head as a, like, as a bit more of a record scratch and say, hold on, we need to like dig into this a bit more is that there was an API endpoint that was returning a user's hashed password. Now, it was a hashed password. It looked like it might have been a bcrypt hash or something like that. So sure, fine, you're using a nice hash function. But why would you be exposing this anyway? So I was really curious, fundamentally, what was that design discussion amongst the dev team? Did they involve the security team to say, we need an endpoint that we're turns a hashed password so i'm scratching my head here and uh, john i don't know if you have any guesses or insight about how strange things like that might happen well you know we've spent a good amount of time talking about um authentication tokens in jwt and things like that and you know mm. that's just a lot of extra compute cycles so maybe just instead of computing <laughs> that that token you just return to hash and you wherever you got the hash that that's your valid to get in right i i don't know um <laughs> it's and th th this is a it's going to be interesting to see. So this particular part of the world, um, software-wise, right? It's it's someone who's written, uh, you know, uh, it. This is this is not enterprise software. Um, it's it's software to manage a gym, uh, and the the reason I'm going down this path, a gym is usually a, a SME, small, medium-sized enterprise or or business. Mm -hmm. They're not going to have a ton of money either for security or for the software. So um, they're going to be looking at you know a SaaS platform uh, that that is tailored to their industry. We're seeing this. I think Wix, the the website creator, has a version for uh, restaurants that I see a lot. So there's a bunch of examples like this. Um, but those tools are usually they haven't been they've been designed by someone else who probably was a gym um, owner in the past and said, hey, I wish I could make this easier for myself and others. I got an idea. They hired some kid in high school, or and maybe it's a team. I'm not trying to insult anybody. If they might be great developers, but Usually, it's going to be not a professionally built product. Um, if someone had an idea, they they turned it into a business and off they went. Point I'm trying to get to is in the future, um, that's the sort of the space where the node co no code folks are are aiming towards. How can they help them out? Um, it'll be interesting to see if that improves security around this type of thing, or if this is an area where AppSec is going to continue to be um, uh, um, uh, needed. Uh, you know, it's 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 a utility which has got a great use. People really want it, really need it. You know, imagine trying to do gym memberships, especially. Excuse me, gym. Um, uh, I'm thinking of gym uh, reservations over the last year. If your mm -hmm. gym was open during COVID, so th there's definitely a need for the software. Um, now it's just how do we make sure that it's it's the security gets to the people that aren't security experts. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great point. And um, encourage everyone, please come check out the show notes as well. We have our own commentary and as well as all the list of articles we're covering. And one of the things I did, uh, you know, also add about this particular uh, uh, finding was that the um, the researchers, I, I think it took them several months, seven or eight months overall to have the conversation about with the with the developers and say, hey, here's a bug. We need you to respond. And you're, you're butting up against a, you know, a just a disclosure policy. We want to talk about this. And to me, kind of reading between the lines there, it sort of felt like it was a just a lower maturity of development organization, an organization that isn't used to dealing with vulnerabilities. They're not used to running even a bug bounty program or finding out like you're pointing out, John, like, oh, oops, there are some vulnerabilities. There's there's some AppSec that we should uh, that we need to, to address. Maybe we should go find a podcast and learn more about it. But um, yeah, I think that's just that that, that underlying theme is how can AppSec uh, be better about embracing these types of applications and helping them be start off secure from the beginning. And you know what, then that's, that's an interesting. <laughs> Interesting point there, real quick. Um, I did that talk at, at the last KubeCon, our Cloud Native Security Day, around security nutrition labels and and how could we, how can we, how can an open source project um, uh, broadcast their level of security? You know, we we've got um, mm. a security response page, we've got all these type of things. At what point are we going to be putting on there? We've got a bug bounty program, um, and that's treated as a level. A recognized level of sophistication or maturity. That that's sort of something interesting to to noodle on a little bit. 
Yeah, and I think that's, uh, I think speaking of the Open Source Security Foundation, which I was about to speak of here, I think that's a great tie-in. I believe they do actually have a, a maturity model. I think it's the OSF or maybe it's the Linux Foundation that's sort of the idea of here's your open source project and you have, uh, if I remember not off the top of my head, so listeners, please uh Google along with me or search along with me and see if I'm right. Something like you have dedicated identified owners that have GPG keys, for example, but then you also have a bug bounty program for your for your project. And you have, I think you're running linters or possibly other security tools for your open source project. So there is some efforts from, I think the LXF along that that direction where you're describing john and now we have also the open source security foundation that's pushing I, I think something similar in spirit to that nutrition label in the sense of we want to we have a new all-star program that we're they're calling it for for github that is continuous automated enforcement of policies and and the reason i think this ties into what you were saying is that these policies are actually quite actionable in the sense of do you have this or do you not have this in with the implication being that you should have this because these are security recommendations. So it's not a checklist that's uh, vague and unactionable in the sense of, did you review your code for vulnerabilities? Or make sure not to have any business logic problems because sure, those are nice sentiments, but that's not a checklist. Nobody can respond to that. You can't say, yep, I'm done. But you can say, we have applied a linter. We've applied a scanter. Scanner. We're doing source composition analysis. Those types of things. Uh, so this looks pretty good for that reason alone of saying we want some actionable policies. We're going to enforce them. And we're going to provide some automation to do so. Uh, what might be the... I'll say the sad thing from a security perspective is that not everybody is going to be able to get to adopt this easily. They need that help to be able to build that maturity into it. Yeah. Um, man, a few ways to go here. Yeah. I, 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 you know, one of the problems we have is, is, you know, volunteers in, in open source communities and security people are not as um, I'm pretty active in uh, CNCF's uh, technical acts, technical advisory group for security, but, I'm aware of these guys. I've never been to a meeting, um, but I know there's a bunch of good folks doing good work. Um, one of the things I was working on uh, with the security tag was uh, uh, what we called Security Pals. Uh, it's a pilot, which we're about to wrap up, and then we'll see how we bring it into um, longer going. But the idea is, as an open source project comes into CNCF, can one of us security people who is familiar with CNCF, how it works, sort of act, reach out and act like, hey, I'm here as a friend to sort of help get you up to speed? Um, there's two levels that we go through their manual, but basically, um, by the time a project is graduated in CNCF, they've gone through both a uh, code audit as well as sort of an architectural security audit. And some of these things we talked about, do they have the security page? Do they have the CICD? Do they have blah, 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 blah? Mm -hmm. But it's still for us a manual process. So um, maybe we can leverage this tool too. It's, 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 they're useful. It's you know it it it. I think their policies they got in here are pretty decent. But as you said, it comes down to recognizing that you need to have a tool like this. Yeah, and I think th that's a great way. We're shifting from talking about vulns at the beginning of the segment now to talking about the the building, if you will. And I highlighted two uh, actually two presentations from DefCon. So we're going to try to sprinkle those out over the next couple couple weeks. One was about um, one that John dropped some foreshadowing on about uh, best practices for application logs, and another one was about uh, basically what works, what didn't work uh, in merging security and software engineering. In other words. We, not caring so much about are we talking about DevOps, DevSecOps, et cetera, just but more of the how do we add practical security to a DevOps team. And I think that really ties into how you were describing uh, working with the tag uh, th there, John, in the sense of partnering with whether it is with the QA team in this presentation was describing to say, hey, the QA team knows how to bring in tools onto the CICD process? What if we added a security tool and worked with them on, on the spirit of quality and security? Uh, the other thing is also uh, just having, uh, building up something like what a tag does as, as CNCF projects can mature, do you have support from engineering leadership or you know organizational leadership? Do they appreciate that we actually need to need and want to have security present? So I think those tie in. And the other thing I'm going to say before I throw it over to you, John, is that on on the logging presentation, that is also something that's a bit more actionable. It's it's much better for the security team to say rather than 
have some logs, make sure you have some visibility to this is the type of visibility we're talking about, or this is why you need visibility, because it may be necessary for forensics, may be necessary for making sure that you can tag a request that comes in all the way through the different microservices and navigates to the end so you can figure out what this request response pair looks like. And oh, by the way, because we are from security, you might be logging a lot of sensitive data, either Please don't, because it might be one of those JOT tokens or one of those password hashes that shows up that we really don't want to show up into logs. Or if you are and have to log sensitive info for that matter, make sure we have a good design for this application logging pipeline so that we can have you know restricted access to it. So that was my long-winded filibuster to give you a chance to read through the articles there quickly, John. Um, you're on the spot. Uh-oh. Um, well, yeah, I've read the, the logging article already. Um, the second one, you're talking about the AppSec Village article, right? Um, yeah. And I've, I've got a reason why I haven't read it, which is because Magno is also, the guy who, who authored it, is also part of Security Tag, so I'm quite familiar with his stuff. Um, we us, us folks get around. I think he's also co-host on another security, application security podcast. I'm forgetting the name, but um, I'll, I'll give him a tweet out later. Uh, but, um, yeah, so a lot of stuff that he's talking about and, and you're talking about there it's a DevSecOps thing we, we know it it's it's important um what's really interesting i think the one part you didn't cover on that and the reason we're trying to do this stuff at a security tag open source people who are you know um volunteering their time either as part of their company or as a hobby they're frequently not security experts right they know mm -hmm. that security needs to be in place but often they might not even be like actual computer science people. It's some dude who, you know, um, he wanted to contribute something or he wanted to fix a, a bug in a product or he had a really small idea and the next thing you know, it's something that 10,000 people are using, which happens pretty easily. <laughs> but they're not security people. So mm -hmm. that's really our focus is how, um, as a central um, technical access group, can we help get those people say, hey, we've got some resources for you. We've got... Um, uh, a template for what a security response should look like. Uh, here's the people who should who should be contacted. So all those type of pieces, if we can get them going like that, and then say, if you have further questions, we're here and we don't bite, right? So that's sort of the the goal for for that that um, project, and he's really good at that too. Um, the logging one, as I, as I brought it up with uh, Mr. Mike Rothman earlier, um, is interesting. Find find the right tab. Not that I need to read it. I, I like the thought process behind the article and what she's doing, but I think what was really interesting to me about it is, as I was questioning Mike, other Mike, um, is you know really the concept of around how do we how do we educate people about that sooner? Um, and he mentioned unit tests also, like these are you know unit tests mm -hmm. in a college class or something like oh god, a teacher wanted me to have seventy five percent coverage. <laughs> How do I get 75% coverage on this, right? It's that type of thing. Um, it's not like, so it'd be interesting to see almost like a, maybe like a two semester or two quarter class where first quarter you have like a, a capstone project and you build something really interesting. And then in the second <clears throat> quarter, someone goes through and breaks everything left and right and you're left to try and fix it or, or have some sort of a, a CTF type thing with it. That could be really mm -hmm. interesting, right? Because I think that would give people experience of, What's this like in the real world? Why, you know, it's. I think even like I said to him, I'm, I'm serious. I say it a lot, the three o'clock in the morning thing, but that that's really I think it for a lot of us is until you've had to troubleshoot some of these beasts under pressure. Um, you know, he mentioned metrics and, and instrumentation. I was talking about logging specifically, but they're both mm -hmm. the same sort of category, and that's super super valuable to um, keep in mind. Uh, I'm with my new project where we are. Um, I've decided to, to put our code on on serverless, so I'm I'm spending a lot of time in Lambda now. You were mentioning um, that gaining popularity, and one of the things I'm looking at is like, how do I get metrics out of a function in Lambda? How do I get logging? Where's that logging going? Somewhere where I can easily access it. Um, for those of you who 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 may have used AWS um, CloudWatch, not always the easiest thing to use. So you know, how do you make those things easy? So again, at three o'clock in the morning, you're not trying to stumble through everything and figure out how does this stupid thing work. So it's important stuff. It is important stuff. And I think that that echoes one of the things that stood out to me from Magno's talk was that he was, you know, he did make the point, which I think I agree with quite strongly, of that DevSecOps is not just SAST plus DAST plus SCA, sort of like to your point of what should we be 
teaching people, you know, people in college, what should new comp sci graduates know? And it, they shouldn't just know, run a SAS tool, run a DAS tool and run an SCA and you've learned security. It's more of the principles of how do you work backwards? How do you debug something that's complex? How do you have some security principles behind your design? How do you get the visibility? Just as you were very uh, sane with all of your serverless functions you're working on. I think that really resonated to me. And I definitely don't have any answers, but I did at least highlight that that type of perspective and approach to the problem, as well as I'm going to pull in one other article that was, uh, this is our, th our thinky piece uh, for, for, for this episode that was about programming languages. And in, in all these conversations, uh, the, the programming language really hasn't come up as a security decision. And I think for the most part, it rarely is. So I'm not really sure I wanted to spend much time on this article because it's sort of, but I did want to at least acknowledge that there are potentially conversations out there. Uh, but I fall in the camp that pick a programming language that people know that has a good tooling ecosystem around it, linters, et cetera, IDE that can give you the little red squiggles. It says, this looks like an insecure function, ideally, or just these are some ways of identifying some code smells. And it's more about your architecture, your software architecture. It's more about how you're designing your application that I think is going to be more consequential than the language choice, which uh, before I throw it over to you for your thoughts, John, I'll just will add a little asterisk in there. I do understand that or I will acknowledge that language can help you with certain attack classes, such as memory safety issues in C, C++. But that doesn't mean that just adopting a language means you're magically secure. Just means you've acknowledged that you can address a particular attack class. But all the security comes from, I think, everything else that, John, you were describing, and a lot of what we were talking about with Mike in the last segment, too. Yeah. Um, uh, for those who want a little bit of cheap uh, entertainment. You mentioned us uh, red squiggly lines. Um, I've got a uh, an ongoing Twitter battle with uh, um, an account which represents the premier Ed conference. That's Ed, the the original Unix uh, line editor. So we've been going back, bickering <laughs> with each other. You know, I think this started something about Emacs. And now we're talking about how to do one liners in Visual Studio. But anyways, um, uh, back on subject here. Um, yeah, I think you sort of nailed it when you talked about um, the, the tooling aspect. When I'm starting a new project, um, you said a language that people know. What what I'm particularly looking for is a language which is popular and it's easy for me to get developers in um, mm -hmm. from a hiring point. Um, something that people want to join your company to work on that language, right? So probably not Fortran. Um, this article was interesting, so I, I didn't click on the links in here. Are they going based off of... Yeah, they're going off the Stack Overflow. Um, yeah. There was like one or two articles which came out over the last week or two, and I saw that where I was going was further down in here. I do read these, I just don't read them that closely. Uh, they uh, um, they talk about the data science languages, but at the top of the paper, he's talking about um, not being, you know, just pick something you, use, you want to use. But the data science languages are like the R and um, uh, mm -hmm. I think he was mentioning Python or something else in there. Python, usually. Uh, but Kafka. Well, wait, R and oh. Kafka. Kafka's not, a, Kafka's not a language. Okay, anyways. Um, maybe there's another Kafka. I think Kafka is a stream processing. But anyways. Um, uh, yeah, though, there are certain languages which you you definitely, if you're going to go down ML, you're going to pick one of a few different things. If you're going to be doing a web app, um, you know, JavaScript is killing it out there as much as we talk about it every every week in a bad way. Um, TypeScript's sort of popular. I know. Um, not too much C nowadays. Uh, there was one or two things which were popping up towards the top in there in that top 10 list again. I think Python was one of them. Um, but yeah, so it's, I think within realm of you're okay sort of picking a language, whatever sort of makes you happy. If you're in certain fields, you're going to be picking some languages over another. Um, but I think the TLDR on this is, is don't go. And he did mention at the top, what is it? Flutter? Um, I'm pretty sure he mentioned that in here somewhere, which is uh, um, a language that came out of Google for doing UI. And I only know about this because I had to look it up last week when I'm like, what the hell is Flutter? Um, so I, I would probably try to stay away from some of that type of thing, right? Unless you're just doing something as a, a hobby project. Hell, pick whatever you want. I mean, I think I mentioned at, at my last place at Accurix, we had a dude in India who was writing a language for the hell of it to see if he could write a language that was more security focused sort of blew my mind that someone would do that and he had done it um so if you want to do that as a project hey cool more power to you um 
But at the same time, if you're looking to write something where you're going to at some point want to bring other people into it, be a little more conservative in, in some of your selections. <laughs> no, I, I agree. And I think the other final thing I'll add, too, is that we've mentioned this in the last couple episodes as well. Uh, you're, you're writing code for other people to read. And if you can't communicate verbally, as you're just discussing, you know, in, in a sprint, here's some design decisions we need to make on this particular architecture, this particular implementation. You're also expressing the same thing through what you're writing. And that is uh, either your documentation for your code, if you have good documentation, um, or just the code itself, you know, can speak for itself. And uh, I will continue to eternally joke about Perl. And one of the things I'll joke about Perl is that Typically, only the person who wrote it is the person who can read and understand it. And um, I think that's sort of why I use that as sort of the, the poster child, if you will, uh, of, of uh, languages that aren't as conducive to collaboration. Uh, we did have, John, two other articles here that were getting pretty complex. And I think we, uh, we're running, uh, we have to, in speaking of crawl, walk, run, we have to run to the finish line here to wrap up the, the segment. Uh, but they were covering some injection attacks against DNS and some really cool, what the researchers were calling code poisoning attacks against uh, ML or natural language uh, models. And to me, the, I guess my quick overview of these two is that in the DNS case, it was really cool to see very simple payloads, uh, a null byte or a backslash dot, or basically escape characters, get shoved into some DNS fields and see how parsers are handling or mishandling them, basically mistaking what the semantic context is and should they be escaped or not escaped, and are there impedance mismatches in different uh, steps of how these uh, fields are being used. And there was some really neat findings out of it, and it's one of those things I read, it makes me feel jealous, and I'm like, Wait, what? All you did was a backslash dot and you got all that kind of cool stuff or a backslash zero, 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 and you stuck a null byte successfully and caused in, you know, caused some mayhem. That's just really, really cool. And in the code poisoning attack real quick, to me, it's definitely starting to get into some fancy math, but there the takeaway is what you're building is becoming more complex. So your threat models need to say, maintain that type of complexity. And you also need some domain expertise. So it's not just a traditional AppSec team, perhaps, who's just familiar with front-end OWASP top 10 types of vulnerabilities. You also need to engage that development team to say, what could go wrong with these models and how should we prioritize the risks come out of it? So perhaps that wasn't as short of a uh, summary as I intended, but um, while, while in the spirit of being fair, John, I'll, I'll throw it over to you to uh, take us out for our last thoughts on the articles this week. So the last thoughts on these two, um, DNS one, guys, go read this. Unless you think you know DNS very, very well, DNS is one of those things which it it is the underpinnings of vast majority of stuff we're doing. It's actually a fairly complex protocol. Um, there's a reason people like me say the last thing I want to do is run a public DNS server. And and this paper is sort of giving you some of the reasons why, right? How complex is a resolver? What's mm -hmm. going on behind it? The slides are pretty decent. Um, on the second one, man, I was still trying to wrap my head around this. I was reading this over the weekend. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I think really that the brief, what it comes down to, I think I don't like the wording they're using. Code poisoning is being mm -hmm. used in a different yeah. um method because it's it sounds like it would be oh god the guys are talking about um um uh, supply chain issues again and this sort of is but it's not in code it's they're looking at ways of actually manipulating without having the source code without having the training set for a machine learning um algorithm how can they put stuff out in a publicish domain that's going to poison the the learning and the results of the tool from that point of view so it's actually it's an area where we're going to see a ton of uh, stuff over the next few years right because this is really rich as we have more and more stuff that's going towards using uh, ml or excuse me machine learning forgot my rainbow hands in some way shape or form um ways like this is how you're able to manipulate that without even having access to the code in the first place so it's pretty neat stuff but a little little bit of a head scratcher at the same time neat stuff but a little bit of a head scratcher that's that's going to be a great motto for us i think on asw i love it john thank you <laughs> uh, as we close um call back to the uh, opening segment the opening lines reference to garbage i encourage everyone to go out there wherever you find music go grab garbage's first album at the very least if not all of them and while you're on those music sites if you just happen to also get your podcasts from those save sites uh, give us a five-star review like and subscribe and just come say hi we'd love to hear from you i want to thank john once again thank all of you for joining us especially over in discord uh 
We'll see you again next week on Application Security Weekly.